Greetings to all of my Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I welcome you to this series on the prophethood of Muhammad. We'll be looking at the major arguments for and against Islam in an effort to answer the question, was Muhammad a prophet of the one true God? Islam, of course, is a hot topic for the 21st century. Far more people are studying Islam now than were 20 years ago or at any other point in history. This is due mainly to events such as terrorist attacks and other events that have captured the world's attention. People understand that Islam is spreading and they wonder what to expect. And I'll say here that Islam is indeed spreading. A recent study showed that in the United Kingdom, over the past several years, the Muslim population has been growing ten times faster than the rest of the population. Muslim birth rates in Europe are three times higher than the birth rates of non-Muslims. And this is important based on simple mathematics. If you start out with one group, even if it's smaller than a larger group, as long as they're spreading more rapidly and multiplying more rapidly and their birth rates are higher, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. As long as things stay the way they are now, it is only a matter of time before the United Kingdom is a Muslim country. It's only a matter of time at current rates of growth before Europe is a Muslim continent. Unless something changes at some point, simple math will make sure that Islam dominates uh, and that Islam very soon will be very uh, close to home. Now, as Christians, we can't go around slaughtering our enemies. So what do we do? I'd say that we do what we've always done, preach the gospel and refute false teachings. So many people are concerned about the spread of Islam because they're wondering what Islam will bring. Will Islam affect their lives negatively? And that's their primary concern. But as Christians, our concern should be somewhat different. Islam seems like it's designed to stop people from accepting the true gospel. Muslims are trained almost from birth to reject Christianity. If you talk to Muslims, you know that they have been indoctrinated all their lives to believe that God can't possibly be a trinity, that God can't possibly enter into his own creation in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Muslims have no idea how one person could die for the sins of another. They reject all of these things, and these things are central to the teachings of Christianity. So with the spread of Islam come some negative consequences. People who have been indoctrinated by Islam, it's much more difficult for them to be receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as Islam spread, spreads, as Islam grows, it should be a major concern to Christians. But we should be concerned for another reason as well. Under Sharia law, the law that Muslims want to spread throughout the world, under Sharia law, there is no freedom to speak the gospel. Go to a dedicated Muslim country. Show me a devout community of Muslims in a Muslim country where Christians are free to go out and proclaim the gospel. doesn't happen. Now, for the past 1,700 years, 
Christians have been free to preach the gospel in many places in the world. In some, we've never been free to preach there. But in large parts of the world, for the past 17 centuries, we have been free to preach the gospel without being killed for it. Now, with the spread of Islam, this could change. This could change within our lifetimes. Within our lifetime, we could see the end of our ability to freely proclaim the gospel. And I think that whether this happens or not will have a lot to do with Christians and the church. We could either be the generation that let our ability to proclaim the gospel slip away, or we could be the generation that stands up, that stands up for the gospel and that carries out the great commission to make disciples of all nations. Just to give you a little background as to where I'm coming from, I didn't become interested in Islam due to terrorism. I became interested in Islam due to friendship. I converted from atheism to Christianity when I was around 20 years old. I was trying to prove that Christianity is not true to a Christian friend. Um, and I was trying to do this by refuting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I came up with some theories to explain away the evidence. But in the end, I looked at my theories and said, this just doesn't line up with the historical facts. So I had a decision to make. I could either reject the evidence and go against the evidence, or I could submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. It was the most difficult decision I've ever had to make, but in the end, I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. About a year or two later, I met a convert to Islam named Anthony. Anthony and I became weightlifting partners, and as we lifted weights in the gym, we would discuss, debate, argue about Christianity versus Islam. And we were both relatively recent converts. We would get very heated in our discussions, and so our discussions deteriorated very rapidly. We eventually got to the point where we were no longer presenting evidence against one another or even evidence for our own positions. We were just making fun of each other's religions, and that was both our faults. So we didn't remain friends for very long. I've always regretted that uh, because for a while we were good friends. But I did learn. I did learn uh, what not to say and um, how to talk to Muslims a bit better through uh, that exchange. Later, as I was studying philosophy as an undergrad, I focused on religious studies and I studied Islam as part of my coursework. We had to read modern works on Islam from people like the Islamic scholar John Esposito. And when I read those modern sources and I listened to the lectures of my Muslim professor, Muhammad sounded like a pretty good guy. I was very impressed with Muhammad. In fact, I once wrote a paper on what an excellent job Muhammad did in Arabia. I even gave uh, a speech on that topic at two different universities. But while I was in college, I met a man named Nabil Qureshi. One night we ended up sharing a hotel room during a school trip. Before we went to sleep that first night, I was reading my Bible as Nabil was putting away his clothes. And all of a sudden, Nabil said, So, are you a hardcore Christian? And I said, Yes. And from that moment on, uh, we argued. And Nabil came with a volley of attacks against the reliability of the Bible, against the deity of Christ, against Jesus' death by crucifixion, against the Trinity. 
And over that weekend, as we were debating these issues, uh, I eventually stopped Nabil. We ended up discussing Islam, of course, and I stopped him in the middle of everything, and I said, look, Nabil, I know what you believe, because you've explained to me what you believe, and because I know about Islam, but I have a question for you. Suppose that everything you've been taught all your life is false. If it's false, do you really want to know it? And I ask that question because many people answer no to that question. I've talked to several atheists and I've asked them, look, if you're wrong about your atheism and God does exist, do you want to know it? And I've had people tell me no. They would rather not know the truth. And I think it's important to ask questions like this if we want to go on with rational discussions, because if you find out in the beginning that a person has no concern for truth, just doesn't care, is simply going to stubbornly adhere to whatever he wants to believe, no amount of reasoning and no amount of evidence uh, is ever going to break through that. So apart from a miracle of God, God breaking through that person's heart, that person will uh, never listen to what you're saying. So I asked this of Nabil, Nabil, would you want to know the truth? And he said, yes and no. He said, yes, because I want to know the truth about God, but no, because it would absolutely destroy my life. But then he said that his desire for truth outweighed his desire for comfort in this world. Nabil and I became best friends, but we spent four years of our lives arguing with one another. We discussed the Bible and the Quran, Jesus and Muhammad, the Trinity and Tawhid. We went to scholarly sources. We watched debates. We talked to scholars. We read books. We wrote down our arguments so that other people could examine them. And it was in the course of that dialogue that I was able to weigh the evidence for Islam and to examine my reasons for rejecting Muhammad as a prophet. So a large part of the evidence that I present in this series is something that came out of a careful dialogue between best friends. The main reason I studied Islam for several years is simply that my best friend was a Muslim. And I'd say that this is one of the best reasons to study Islam, our love and concern for others. There are more than a billion people in the world who are trapped by Islam. The gospel can set them free, and love should compel us to reach out to them. A few years ago, Nabil gave his life to Jesus Christ. I thought to myself, well, I guess I don't have to study Islam anymore. But as I watched Nabil endure persecution over the coming months and years, persecution from his family and from others, I concluded that Muslims make some pretty cool Christians when they convert. Let me tell you why. As I noted, Muslims are trained from the day they're born to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I was an atheist, I didn't believe in God, but Apart from that, I didn't have problems with the doctrine of the Trinity or the idea of the Incarnation or the idea of the Resurrection. I simply did not believe in God. I was not opposed to all of the uh, core doctrines of Christianity. Islam is different. Muslims are taught, again, that God can't be a Trinity, that someone can't die for your sins. They're taught these things all their lives. The result is that when we preach the gospel to Muslims, our message just makes no sense to them. They've been indoctrinated against Christian doctrine. 
Another problem Muslims face is that Muhammad commanded that apostates should be killed. Muhammad commanded in Sahih al-Bukhari number 6922 and in many other passages, if anyone leaves his Islamic religion, kill him. So if you're a Muslim and you become a Christian, other Muslims are supposed to kill you. This is a huge obstacle to people's ability to seriously consider the gospel as an alternative to Islam. Beyond this, Muslims are taught that a person who becomes a Christian is committing the worst possible sin. When someone says, Jesus Christ is Lord, Muslims say that this person has committed shirk, associating partners with God. Many Muslims believe that shirk is unforgivable. You will go to hell for converting to Christianity. You will go to hell for saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, putting this together, when we invite a Muslim to Christianity, we're asking for a lot. We're asking that person to lay aside everything he's ever been taught. We're asking him to risk death. We're even asking him to do something that he's been taught is the worst possible sin. But here's the key. When a Muslim is willing to do all of that, to go through all of that, to have his family shun him, to risk death, that's someone who will not hesitate to lay down his life for Jesus Christ if he converts to Christianity. So there are several good reasons to get involved in sharing the gospel with Muslims. And now uh, a large part of my life is dedicated to that. Nabil is my debate partner. We spend a, a great deal of our time debating uh, Muslims. Well, because of the reasons we've already laid out, uh, none of this is an easy task, not debating, not sharing the gospel with Muslims. Uh, it requires a lot of things. It requires prayer. It requires patience. It requires a great deal of love. And to be most effective, I'd say it requires a careful study of Islam. Without understanding Islam, we won't understand how Muslims are misunderstanding the gospel. Now, I've met Christians, even Christians who are interested in witnessing to Muslims who refuse to study Islam. Christ, some Christians will say, I don't need to know about Islam. I just need to know about Christianity. That's the message we preach. That's all we need to know. And as I just said, if Christians don't understand Islam, we won't realize Muslims are sometimes completely misunderstanding us when they preach the gospel because they've been taught things about the Trinity, the Incarnation, uh, Jesus' deity, things that are completely wrong about our beliefs. Uh, Muslims in the Quran, for instance, Muslims are taught that the Trinity is made up of God, Jesus, and Mary, and that they're three separate beings. So when you say Trinity to a Muslim, they don't always understand what you're saying. And if we don't know what they've been taught, we run the risk of miscommunication. But there's another reason to study Islam. In some people, in some places in the world, uh, people aren't converting to Islam. In fact, in some places, more people are leaving Islam than are converting to it. But in other places, such as America, thousands of people are converting to Islam every year, especially on college campuses. And this is sad because these sorts of conversions to Islam only occur in an atmosphere of ignorance. How does a Muslim approach someone in the world today? 
Muslims walk up to a woman and tell her that Islam supports women's rights, that Muhammad was a champion of women's rights, that Muhammad was a feminist even. Muslims walk up to students on college campuses and they tell them that the Quran is a scientific masterpiece, that the Quran is filled with scientifically accurate statements and that, it, that this proves, based on science, that the Quran is the word of God. Muslims are constantly telling non-Muslims that Muhammad was the greatest person in history. They tell people that the Quran has been perfectly preserved and that this is proof that it's the religion of God. They tell people that Islam is a religion of peace and that people like Osama bin Laden have ignored the true teachings of, of Muhammad and that that's why they've become violent. Islam, of course, is true and good and peaceful. Now, if you studied Islam before, you know that all of this is complete nonsense. But most people don't know that. And this allows Muslims to spread their religion through sheer deception. The only antidote for this is for people to learn more about Islam. And I'm completely convinced that if people in general learned the facts about Islam and about Muhammad and about the Quran, we would stop seeing conversions to Islam. A careful study of Islam, then, is extremely important. This course will be an important part of that careful study. We're going to look at all of the major arguments for and against Islam, and in the end, we're going to put all of it together into a comprehensive case against Islam. But, we but before we move on to an examination of the arguments for and against Islam, we need to lay some groundwork. So in the rest of this lecture, we're going to have three introductions. We'll have an introduction to some biblical principles on the critical evaluation of prophets. We'll have a brief introduction to logic and argumentation, which will help us to, uh, when we attempt to assess the arguments for Islam. And finally, we'll have an introduction to the life of Muhammad so that when we're discussing details of his life in later lectures, we'll have this context in mind. Consider the following passage from Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Here, God says that a false prophet may be able to perform some supernatural sign. This is similar to what happened when the magicians of Egypt were able to imitate some of Moses' signs. But God tells us to examine the prophet's message to see whether the message lines up with that of the other prophets. So we can learn from this that a true prophet is going to point to the one true God and that his message is going to be consistent with the message of the prophets who came before him. So we have a criterion here for recognizing a true prophet. Consider also Deuteronomy 18.20, which says, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Here Moses gives us two criteria for recognizing a false prophet. If the prophet, one, delivers a revelation that doesn't come from God, or two, speaks in the name of other gods, he is a false prophet. 
Just two verses later, we read this. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So if someone says, God told me such and such, and that such and such does not come to pass, this person is a false prophet. Now, we also have criteria for false prophets in the New Testament. In Matthew seven fifteen through 20, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Here Jesus tells us that we can recognize a false prophet by the fruit he produces. Now, in the Bible, we have criteria for evaluating prophets in 1 Kings, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Acts, in Galatians, and in many other places. In order to recognize Muhammad as a false prophet, though, we only need these basic principles. So we won't go into a detailed study here. We can just summarize the biblical position on false prophets. Generally, we recognize false teachers and false prophets based on the following four criteria. One, destruction. False prophets tend to bring destruction on others, on their followers, and ultimately on themselves. Two, unrighteous morals and motives. This would include things like greed, exploitation, self-serving revelations, and self-aggrandizement. Three, manipulative methods, deceit, false promises, tickling people's ears with what they want to hear, appealing to the lusts of the flesh. Four, a message that is inconsistent with that which is known to be true. So in order to spot false prophets, we have to examine them based on certain criteria. We have to weigh the evidence for and against them to see if they really speak for God. The best way to examine evidence is to formulate the evidence into a careful argument and to see if the argument really shows what it's supposed to prove. So let's talk a little bit about arguments. Muhammad believed that he was a prophet. His followers in the world today believe that he was a prophet, and they want us to believe that he was a prophet. So how do you convince someone that your position is correct? Well, you can try to make them accept your position. You can say, accept my position or else. But the best way to do this is to offer an argument, to offer some reason for accepting uh, your position, to appeal to the person's reason. Now, we have to be careful here because uh, when many people hear the word argument, they think of bickering and even yelling. That's not what I mean here. An argument is simply a set of statements one of which is claimed to follow from the other statements. Now, I'm a philosopher. My job is to examine arguments. All I do all day long, unless I'm out speaking the gospel or something, all I do while I'm working is examine arguments. So what we're doing in this series is just what I do. Uh, in an argument, you're saying, since these statements are true, since certain statements are true, this other statement has to be true as well. 
The statements that you start out with are called the premises, and the final statement, the final statement which you're claiming follows from the other statements, the original statements, uh, the final statement is called the conclusion. Let's look at a simple argument, perhaps the most famous example of an argument in the world. Premise one, all men are mortal. Premise two, Socrates is a man. Now, if we start out with those two premises, what can we conclude? Well, the conclusion would be, therefore, Socrates is mortal. If all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, then we can conclude this third statement, something that's not stated individually by the others, but which we can gather from them. So the conclusion is, therefore, Socrates is mortal. In an argument like this, we're saying that since the first premises are true, this other statement, this conclusion, must be true as well. Now, in order to evaluate arguments effectively, we need to understand how to spot the difference between a good argument and a bad argument. More formally, uh, as philosophers will put it, we need to understand the difference between a sound argument and an unsound argument, where sound usually just means good argument and unsound means bad argument. When we examine arguments, we're looking for two things. We're looking for valid logic and true premises. In the argument we just looked at, we can ask ourselves, is it true that all men are mortal? Is it true that Socrates is a man? Here we're asking whether the premises are true, and if the premises are true, then good. We have true premises. That's one criterion of a good argument. The other factor is valid logic. Is the conclusion really connected to the premises? If the premises are true, does that conclusion have to be true as well? Let's look at another argument to see what I mean. Premise one, Socrates is Greek. Premise two, Socrates is a man. Conclusion, therefore, Islam is true. Now, here we're starting out with true premises, so we have one part of a good argument. We're starting out with true statements. Uh, the problem here is that the conclusion doesn't follow from the other premises. There's no necessary connection. So the logic here is not valid. When we say that an argument is valid, we're saying that true premises will always give rise to a true conclusion. If we wanted to get a bit more technical, there are rules that we can use to examine arguments to see whether they're valid or invalid. But this doesn't really concern us in this series because I'm going to take all of the major Muslim arguments and I'm going to construct them in such a way that the logic is valid, at least on the surface. So our main concern will be whether the premises of the arguments are true, since the arguments will be valid. If we end up with true premises in these Muslim arguments, then we will have to conclude that Muhammad was a prophet. Now, in all of the arguments we'll be examining for Islam, and in every argument for Islam I've ever heard, there's always at least one false premise. And I have heard some really, really bad arguments for Islam. One day a Muslim said to me, uh, David, the greatest boxer in history was Muhammad Ali. He was the most uh, famous athlete in the world. Now, since he converted to Islam, if you can't show me a, an athlete of similar stature, of similar greatness, who converted to Christianity, you should admit that Islam is true. Now, 
That's obviously absurd, so we're not going to go through why that argument is flawed. But Muslims offer arguments like this, and sometimes it's very easy to spot the flaw. Other times it's a bit more difficult. The, the arguments are, are especially difficult to evaluate if we, if we don't know the basic facts. Now, let me give a, a, a more serious example of an argument for Islam. As an example, we'll be looking at this uh, more in the next lecture. Uh, but for now, think about this argument. Muslims will say that since the Quran has been perfectly preserved for 14 centuries, this shows that it's the word of God because clearly God has been preserving this book. Now, when we put this argument into its logical form, we put it in logical form when we actually lay out the premises and the conclusion, when we put this claim into logical form, we get the following argument. Premise one, if a text is preserved for many centuries, it must be from God. Premise two, the Quran has been preserved, perfectly preserved for many centuries. Conclusion, therefore, the Quran must be from God. I almost always try to put arguments like this in logical form because it allows me to examine the premises individually to see whether each premise is true. As we'll see in the next lecture, there's uh, some very good reasons to doubt the first premise of this argument. Uh, simply because a text is preserved for a long time doesn't show that it's the word of God. But premise two is completely false. If you examine the evidence, premise two is so ridiculous. I, I can't even think of that. I can't even imagine anyone examining the evidence and coming uh, to that, uh, that coming to the idea that that statement is true. The Quran has gone through all kinds of changes, and we'll see that in the next lecture. Uh, the point here, though, is this argument is valid. In other words, if those premises were true, the conclusion would have to be true. So if it were true that perfect preservation entails divine inspiration, and if it were true that the Quran had been perfectly preserved, then it would follow that the Quran is the word of God. But this argument is unsound because there's at least one false premise. In this case, I'd say we have two false premises. Now, as I said a moment ago, I can construct all of the major Muslim arguments in such a way that the arguments are valid on the surface. But at the same time, I want to point out that on a deeper level, Muslim arguments are generally invalid due to some common fallacies that Muslims employ. A fallacy is an error in reasoning that makes it possible to go from true premises to a false conclusion. There are all kinds of fallacies. We only need to look at two here because these are the two that are the most common uh, in Muslim arguments. First, there's circularity. An argument is circular when it requires us to assume what we're attempting to prove. This is also called begging the question. So imagine the following conversation between a Christian and a non-Christian. The Christian says, the Bible is the word of God, believe it. And the non-Christian responds, well, how do you know that it's the word of God? And the Christian answers, because the Bible says in several places that it's the word of God. And the non-Christian asks, well, how do you know that it's right when it says the word of God? And the Christian replies, well, it's the word of God, it's always right. Here, the Christian is assuming from the beginning that the Bible is the Word of God and then using this assumption to prove that the Bible is the Word of God. But the Christian can't assume that in an argument that's meant to prove that the Bible is the Word of God. That would be circular. In this series, we're going to see that nearly all Muslim arguments have a hidden circularity. 
Another common fallacy is inconsistency. We're inconsistent when we say that something is both true and false at the same time and in the same sense. In other words, we're being inconsistent when there's some kind of contradiction somewhere in our thinking. There are uh, several different ways we can be inconsistent. Uh, think about the following things that, some, that people sometimes say. We can spot the inconsistency. Sometimes people will say, there is no truth. Well, if there is no truth, then even that statement is not true. Even the statement it is not true would, I mean, there is no truth would be not true. But the person who says that there is no truth clearly wants us to accept his statement as true. So he's being inconsistent. He's saying there is no truth, and yet he's saying, accept my statement, which is true. It's also common, pe common to hear people say, stop forcing your morality on other people. Well, the person who says this is trying to force her morality on other people. So she's saying on the one hand that it's okay to force one's moral views on other people because that's what she's trying to do. But on the other hand, she's saying that it's wrong to try and uh, force other people to accept your moral views. And this is just inconsistent. We can also be inconsistent by applying double standards. So the, the contradiction inherent in double standards is you're saying, here's this criterion for determining truth over here, um, but I'm going to apply a completely different methodology over here. So you're saying this is the correct methodology and yet that it's not the correct methodology. And so there is, this is a kind of contradiction. Let's suppose that some Christian is impressed by the argument I brought up a moment ago. The Bible is the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God and it must be right since it's the Word of God. Suppose a Muslim replies, well, the Quran claims to be the Word of God. Therefore, it's the Word of God, because since it's the Word of God, it must always be right in what it says. Here, the Christian might say, what? That's an awful argument. You're being circular. Now, this would be an example of applying double standards. The Christian would be saying that it's okay for Christians to be circular in their reasoning, but that it's not okay for Muslims to be circular in their reasoning. In other words, whatever standards we apply, whatever methodology we apply, uh, that's the methodology we should stick with, and we shouldn't change our methodology when we look at some other position. So if we're examining Islam, we should have one methodology, and if we're examining Christianity, we should have the same methodology. We should apply the same standards. We should be consistent. Well, this concludes our brief introduction to logic. This is about all we'll need in order to evaluate the arguments for and against Islam. There is, uh, however, one more issue I'd like to cover in this introductory lecture, and that's the life of Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad is the man we're examining in this series, so let's take a brief look at his life. Turning to Muhammad, we have to draw a distinction between the Muhammad of faith, the Muhammad that Muslims believe in, and the Muhammad of history, the historical Muhammad, the Muhammad that we can know about by examining historical records. As we'll see in this series, these two Muhammads seem to be completely different people. Let's consider the Muhammad of faith. According to the Quran, Muhammad's life was an example that all Muslims should strive to follow. We read in Surah 3321, Certainly you have in the Apostle of Allah an excellent exemplar for him who hopes in Allah and the latter day and remembers Allah much. So Muhammad is the person you should strive to be like if you're a Muslim. And if you ask a Muslim what Muhammad 
was like, you'll hear some amazing things. Consider the following description of Muhammad by Abul Maududi in, his, in some of passages from his book, Towards Understanding Islam. This is one of the most common, most popular uh, books that Muslims distribute here in the West. So these are the things that this book reports. Muhammad is entirely different from the people among whom he is born and with whom he spends his youth and early manhood. He never tells a lie. The whole nation is unanimous in testifying to his truthfulness. He is the very embodiment of modesty in the midst of a society which is immodest to the core. He helps the orphans and widows. He is hospitable to travelers. He harms no one. He is such a lover of peace that his heart melts for the people when they take up arms and cut each other's throats. In brief, the towering and radiant personality of this man in the midst of such a corrupted and dark environment, may be likened to a beacon light brightening a pitch-dark night, or to a diamond in a heap of dead stones. After he begins to deliver the message of Islam, the ignorant nation turns against him. Abuses and stones are showered at his august person. Every conceivable torture and cruelty is perpetrated upon him. Can anyone ever imagine a higher example of self-sacrifice, brotherliness, and kind-heartedness towards his fellow human beings than that a man would ruin his happiness for the good of others, while those very people for whose betterment he is striving should stone him, abuse him, banish him, and give no quarter even in his exile, and that in spite of all this, he should refuse to stop working for their well-being. When he began preaching his message, all of Arabia stood in awe and wonder and was bewitched by his wonderful eloquence and oratory. It was so impressive and captivating that his worst enemies were afraid of hearing it, lest it should penetrate deep into the recesses of their hearts and carry them off their feet, making them forsake the old religion and culture. It was so matchless that the whole legion of Arab poets, preachers, and speakers of the highest caliber failed to bring forth its equivalent. This reserved and quiet man, who for a full 40 years never gave any indication of political interest or activity, suddenly appeared on the stage of the world as such a great political reformer and statesman that without the aid of radio, telephone, and the press, he brought together the scattered inhabitants of a desert extending across 1,200,000 square miles. He joined together a people who were warlike, ignorant, unruly, uncultured, and plunged in self-destructive, trivial warfare under one banner, one law, one religion, one culture, one civilization, and one form of government. He accomplished this feat, not through any lure, oppression, or cruelty, but by his captivating manner, his winsome personality, and the conviction of his teaching. With his noble and gentle behavior, he befriended even his enemies, he captured the hearts of the people with his boundless sympathy and human kindness. He did not oppress even his deadly enemies, men who had sworn to kill him. He forgave them all when he triumphed over them. He never took revenge on anyone for his personal grievances. He never retaliated against anyone for the wrongs perpetrated on him. It was he who turned the course of human thought away from superstition, unnatural and an unexplainable phenomena towards a logical approach illustrating love for truth and a balanced worldly life. In the cavalcade of world history, this sublime figure of this wonderful person towers so high above all the great men of all history. 
that they appear to be dwarfs when contrasted to him. Can anyone cite another example of a maker of history of such distinction, another revolutionary of such brilliance and splendor? This was actually a severely condensed version of Maududi's section on the greatness of the Prophet of Islam. Muslims will go on for pages and pages about how wonderful Muhammad was. And this is the picture of Muhammad that's being distributed uh, around the world by Muslims. But does the Muhammad that Muslims are proclaiming, does the Muhammad that many Muslims believe in, uh, does this Muhammad line up with what we can establish historically about Muhammad? If not, then Muslims have a problem that needs to be addressed. Now, in the remainder of this lecture, we're going to examine um, a brief history of the prophethood of Muhammad. Uh, we aren't going to get into many of the details, many of the things that would concern us later on. We'll be covering those in later lectures, but we will have a brief outline. Here we need to understand a few important historical principles which are especially relevant when we examine figures such as Muhammad or Jesus. First, early testimony is important. As a general rule, the earlier the historical evidence, the better. If we've got a source written several hundred years after an event, that might be some evidence. But if we've got a source that can be traced back to within a few years of an event, that's a lot better. Second, the more sources we have, the better. If we've got one source that tells us about an event, that's some evidence. But if we've got several sources that tell us about an event, that tell us the same thing, that's better. Multiple sources are even stronger if we can show that the sources are independent. That is, when we can show that the author of one source wasn't copying the other source. If we can show that people are writing independently, that's much more evidence. Finally, embarrassing testimony is important, especially if we're dealing with material that comes from the followers of some religious figure, such as Jesus or Muhammad. And the reason is simple. If you love and respect some leader, you're probably not going to make up bad things about him. If you're going to make up anything, you make up something good. And so when we look at historical sources, if we see things that are negative, the only explanation is that those things really happened because someone wouldn't have made up those things. So these are principles that historians use to investigate history, and we'll be using them, to, uh, we'll be using them as we investigate the life of Muhammad. Now, since early testimony is so important, we have to ask what our sources are for the life of Muhammad. Well, the most important source for the study of Muhammad is, of course, the Quran. The, uh, well, if we're examining Islam, this, the, uh, the Quran is the most important source. As far as uh, studying the life of Muhammad, we have to go to other sources because the Quran isn't a book of history the way, say, the Gospels and Christianity are. Uh, the Quran is believed by Muslims to be a book that was on a tablet in heaven, and then Muhammad received this book through the angel Gabriel. So the Quran is not a book that is about Muhammad. If we want to learn about the history of Muhammad and the history of the early Muslim community, we have to go to other sources, namely the Hadith and the Sira literature. The Hadith are collections of Muhammad's teachings or deeds that give Muslims rules to live by. Muslims are supposed to model their lives after Muhammad. The problem here, as far as history is concerned, is that the major collections of Ahadith, such as Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, were compiled more than two centuries after the life of Muhammad. 
This means that they're fairly late and that it's difficult to take everything they say at face value. Some people are extremely skeptical and say we can't learn anything from the Hadith because they're so late. I think we can get plenty of good information from the Hadith as long as we proceed carefully. The Sira literature is a different kind of source. The Sira scholars often uh, try to present a fuller picture of Muhammad by giving a complete biography. This is different from the Hadith where... They're arranged by doctrines, not chronologically. So the project of the Hadith scholars was very different from the project of the Sirah scholars. The most important Sirah text is the Sirat Rasulullah by Ibn Asak. Uh, but even this was written more than a century after the life of Muhammad. So we have to keep in mind when we're dealing with Muslim sources that they're quite late. Uh, nevertheless, I think we can uh, get enough information to have a pretty reliable picture of Muhammad. Uh, so, let's begin with a uh, brief history of the Prophet of Islam, and then uh, we'll go into some uh, more specific issues later in the series. Muhammad was born in Mecca around 570 AD, or nearly six centuries after the birth of Jesus. His father died before he was born, and his mother died when he was about six years old. So Muhammad was an orphan. He stayed with a couple of different relatives, and I suspect this played a role later in life when uh, he did emphasize certain forms of social justice. Some important things were going on in the world at this time. Probably the most important as far as the spread of Islam is concerned is that there was a war between the Byzantines and Persians. The Byzantine uh, Empire was what was left over uh, of the uh, Roman Empire in the east. And the Romans, i.e. the Byzantines, were fighting the Persians. But by fighting so much, they eventually wore each other out. And Muslim armies later took advantage of this uh, weakness. We don't know much about Muhammad prior to the time he started receiving his revelations. Muslim tradition tells us that he, uh, he was known as Al-Amin, the trustworthy. So it seems likely that Muhammad had a reputation for honesty in his dealing with others early in his life. Uh, apparently he was handsome as well. Uh, one day a rich widow named Khadija, whom Muhammad was working for, asked him to marry her, and Muhammad accepted Khadija was around 15 years older than he was. Uh, Muhammad was around 25 at the time. And by all accounts, they did love each other and, and had a happy marriage. Muhammad developed the habit of retreating to a cave outside Mecca for prayer and meditation each year. In the year 610, during one of these periodic retreats, something interesting happened. Here's what happened according to one of Muhammad's earliest biographers, Ibn Ishaq. When it was the night on which God honored him with his mission and showed mercy on his servants thereby, Gabriel brought him the command of God. He came to me, said the apostle of God, while I was asleep with a coverlet of brocade whereon was some writing and said, Read. I said, What shall I read? He pressed me with it so tightly that I thought it was death. Then he let me go and said, Read. I said, What shall I read? He pressed me with it again so that I thought it was death. Then he let me go and said, Read. I said, What shall I read? He pressed me with it the third time so that I thought it was death. And said, Read. I said, What shall I read? And this I said only to deliver myself from him, lest he should do the same to me again. He said, Read in the name of thy Lord who created, created man of blood coagulated. Read, thy Lord is the most beneficent, who taught by the pen, taught that which they knew not unto men. 
So I read it, and he departed from me, and I woke from my sleep, and it was as though these words were written on my heart. Muslims call this the night of power. Muhammad was terrified by what happened to him, and he became suicidal. Arabs in Muhammad's time believe that poets were possessed by jinn, which are close to demons, but not quite. But there were evil spirit beings. Muhammad didn't want people in his tribe saying that he was possessed by a jinn, so he attempted suicide, tried to throw himself off a cliff, but the spirit being wouldn't let him. Muhammad ran home to his wife, begging her to cover him with a blanket. But when he talked with Khadija, she was able to convince him that he wasn't possessed. He was a prophet of God. Muslims now believe that it was the angel Gabriel who appeared to Muhammad that night and on many occasions for the rest of his life. Muhammad was eventually commanded to preach his message, and he did as he was told. He preached for several years in Mecca, but he wasn't very successful. After three years of preaching, he had around 30 converts, so this is not a Billy Graham uh, crusade that we're talking about. Uh, but we wouldn't expect Muhammad to be successful early on. This was a pagan environment. They believed in hundreds of gods and goddesses, and Muhammad came preaching a strict monotheism. But probably even more important than the religious convictions of the people of Mecca was the money they earned. They were the spiritual capital of Arabia, and people came to their city to worship their gods. And Muhammad was attacking this livelihood by threatening the polytheism there. Needless to say, Muhammad's new religion wasn't very popular. During, during these early years, Muhammad preached a peaceful message. He called for religious tolerance, but he told people that they needed to turn to Allah. In general, the Meccans hated him. And the persecution eventually got so bad that Muhammad decided to accept an offer to go and live somewhere else with the Muslim community. The city was close to 300 miles to the north. It was named Yathrib. It is now called Medina. Uh, there were five tribes at Medina, two Arab tribes and two Jewish tribes. They wanted a mediator. They had been fighting for a long time, and they wanted someone to make peace between them. Muhammad seemed like the perfect candidate. He was a strict monotheist. The Jews liked that, and he was an Arab. The Arabs liked that. Now, it's difficult to overestimate the importance of the move of the Muslim community from Mecca to Medina. It was in Medina that the Muslim community became a political entity, which has always been uh, central to Islam. But the move to Medina is important for another reason. As soon as Muhammad moved to Medina, his dealings with non-Muslims began to change. Again, he initially preached a relatively peaceful message that changed radically in Medina. Now, we have to keep in mind that Muhammad was safe in Medina. The Meccans tried to kill him when he left, mostly because he promised that he would bring them slaughter. But once he was gone, they were relieved. So Muhammad was in Medina. The people of Medina agreed that they would protect him. And so Muhammad was safe. The Muslims could live in peace. No one was going to kill them. They could work, worship Allah, and study the Quran in peace. But Muhammad did not want to live in peace. He started robbing the Meccan caravans. He knew that the people of Mecca depended on these caravans. Anyone who had money would invest in one of these caravans, hoping to receive something extra in return. Now, there was no insurance. If that caravan got robbed, you might go hungry. Now, Muhammad started sending his followers on raids. The Muslims attacked 
set out to attack these caravans seven times. The people of Mecca did not retaliate. So Muhammad is attacking, and the Meccans do nothing. Muhammad is attacking, and the Meccans do nothing. Muhammad ta attacks again, and the Meccans do nothing. But after a while, the Meccans did retaliate because of something that happened. Muhammad's followers had their first very successful raid, the Nakla raid. One of the Muslims shaved his head so that people would think he's on a religious journey. Then the Muslims attacked killed a man, and took the goods and some captives. The problem was that this happened during the holy month in which everyone had agreed not to fight. The Muslims had attacked during the holy month and killed someone. Muhammad was a bit worried about this at first, but then he received Surah 2, 2.17, which says that fighting in the holy month is bad, but since the pagans had persecuted the Muslims, it was okay to attack them during the holy month. So the spoils were divided up, and Abdullah, who had attacked the caravan during the holy month, violating the peace agreement, was from that point on called the commander of the faithful. Muslims went on several raiding expeditions, and uh, the Meccans had never retaliated. But now the Muslims had gone too far. They had killed during the holy month. It was clear that the Muslims were not going to stop attacking the caravans and that Meccan trade would never be safe. So the pagan tribes descended, uh, decided to send an army to protect the next caravan. The Muslims attacked, and this was the Battle of Badr. Now, who was attacking here? Who were the aggressors? The Muslims were. They attacked the caravans over and over and over, and it was only when the Muslims violated the rules that the people of Mecca finally reacted my friends, this was terrorism. The livelihood of the people of Mecca was constantly being threatened. Muhammad knew that. This eventually led to war between the Muslims and Mecca. There were three key battles. The first was the Battle of Badr. Muhammad, uh, the Muslims went to raid a caravan. The Meccans found out about it, sent some troops. 300 Muslims fought around 1,000 Meccans, and the Muslims won, even though they were outnumbered. Muslims consider this to be a miraculous confirmation of Islam. The next year, there was the Battle of Uhud, and here the Muslims were crushed, and Muhammad himself was injured and almost killed. Interestingly enough, Muslims don't consider this any evidence against Islam. The tiebreaker came a little later at the Battle of the Trench. Muhammad had a trench dug around Medina. Um, and the Meccans weren't ready for that sort of warfare. Nothing really happened. The battle was a draw. But from that point on, things did not go well for the Meccans. In 628, Muhammad made a treaty with Mecca. That treaty acknowledged Muhammad's right to preach and the right of Muslims to make the pilgrimage to, to the Kaaba. Later, there was an altercation between a Muslim and a non-Muslim. Muhammad declared that the treaty had been violated, and he marched on Mecca with 10,000 soldiers. The Meccans surrendered. And it was a fairly peaceful transfer of power. The Muslims entered the Kaaba, destroyed almost all of the idols, everyone except one, and Muhammad died about two years later. In this lecture, we've gone through a brief introduction to the life of Muhammad, a brief introduction to logic, and a brief introduction to the critical evaluation of prophets. This is all the groundwork we need in order to move on to an examination of the arguments for Islam. Fortunately for us, Muhammad offered plenty of arguments for his status as God's last and greatest prophet. What this does is it gives us an opportunity. It gives us everything we need to examine his claim and to see whether his arguments are truly from God. 
Now, if you master the material in this series, I promise you that you will never be put to shame in a discussion, in a dialogue, or in an argument, or in a debate. Uh, so this is valuable material. In our next lecture, we'll begin examining some Quranic arguments for the prophethood of Muhammad. These are arguments that we can find in the Quran. We'll see that some of the most popular arguments for Islam in the world are horribly, horribly flawed.